Uh, let me give thanks for Steve and for AJ being willing to step in. What Weren't they a blessing? Uh, they were a blessing to me as I watched from afar. Um, really thankful for those guys to be able to step in and do what they do. And for you guys to hear from them as men of God uh, who know God's word, who walk with him closely. So real proud of those guys uh, to be able to step in and preach. All right. Uh, hey, if you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here. We are in the middle of a study of the book of Luke. So if you've got a Bible, there should be one right around you somewhere. Why don't you go ahead and grab it and find Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in your New Testament. Luke chapter 6. Let me tell you where we've been. We've handled uh, Jesus talking to his critics, the Pharisees. And then Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he chose 12 to be his disciples. He came down from the mountain and began, uh, really, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, also called the Sermon on the Plain, which A.J. began for us last week. And that set uh, two big contrasting realities in the minds of the disciples. And we looked at, uh, as A.J. put up on the screen for you, two different ways of life that you might look at one side and say, blessed, and you might look on the other side and say, whoa, I don't want that to be a part of my life. And Jesus, as he typically does, is takes a reversal for us and said, blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who experience, uh, experience social, financial, emotional struggle on the account of the Son of Man. Well, he's going to continue preaching here this morning as he moves through really the remainder of Luke chapter 6. And, and Luke has a way of getting the disciples ready for what they're going to face. And right at the beginning of their ministry of being called to Jesus, Jesus is going to set their perspective in such a way so that they understand what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't want these men to be surprised as they go out and do ministry for him. What Jesus is doing is framing their perspective and their understanding, which we saw last week, and what he's about to do now is not just talk about circumstances that may arise as a result of being faithful to Jesus. If you look just up in that previous paragraph, you look at verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 22, here's what Jesus says there, blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. So let me prepare us for what we're going to look at here today. Jesus' counsel to the disciples and all of those on the plane who are listening to him is very stark counsel. It's very sharp. He's going to use words like hate and enemies and abuse. So right before we get into this passage, this is not a passage about things that when somebody uses the term abuse in our culture today, it is a lightning rod radioactive term. Amen? When that word pings your radar, immediately we have visceral reactions. So what Jesus is talking about in this passage is not spousal abuse, sexual abuse, child abuse, marital abuse, none of that stuff. Jesus is talking about the consequences of living for Christ in a sinful world. Have you found that it's hard to live for Christ in the world? Do you understand that? Do you understand that you are a fish swimming upstream? Anybody have people at work who don't agree with what you believe about Jesus? Right? Anybody disagree with your philosophical assumptions about the sinfulness of man, the need of redemption, the hope of Jesus Christ and his return to judge the living and the dead one day? Does everybody agree with that when we preach that? No. We live in a day and time, and Jesus' disciples lived in a day and time, where that message 
of the sinfulness of man, the need for forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation with God was just as necessary then as it is today. So as Jesus prepares these disciples for what they're about to experience, he is going to give them not just consequences of life in a sinful world. Now, are there consequences of life in a sinful world, even as Christians? Do Christians get sick and die? Do Christians get into car accidents? Do Christians experience difficult things as a result of living in the sinful world? Amen, they sure do. But Jesus is going to move beyond consequences, states of being, rich, poor, right? Happy, sad. And he's going to move into the reality of you having an enemy, of somebody who doesn't like what you have to say about the fact that they need to repent for their sin and turn and trust Christ. He's going to talk to you about people who hate the convictions you have. He's going to talk to you about people who don't agree with your philosophical assumptions. And right from the beginning of his training of these disciples, he's going to tell them how to respond when people don't like you when people hate you for being faithful to Jesus. Do we need that kind of teaching? Man, we need that kind of teaching. You know why? Because I have, such, I have a tendency to not like being opposed. I like it when people like me. Anybody else? So Jesus has to kind of scrape away all of our assumptions about what it means to follow Christ. And he's going to give, he's, this text is essentially going to break into two parts. He's going to talk about the marks of what a disciple looks like. How should a disciple respond to people who hate him? How should that individual at work, in their family, in their neighborhood, respond when people don't like him or her? But then, because Jesus is such a fantastic preacher... Jesus isn't going to tell you just what to do. He's going to get underneath the why we do what we do, and he's going to look at our motivations. All of our decisions are rooted in certain motivations and ambitions of our heart. And Jesus, because he's a fantastic preacher, aims right at the heart. And I hate it when he does that because it's convicting, and i got to repent. And that's what this passage is too. So everything in this, this text uh, really is not hard to understand. Jesus is painfully clear. Have you found the greatest problem in your life is not understanding what Jesus says, but applying what Jesus says? Anybody else? That's what this passage is. Super clear, easy to understand. You could teach it to a third grader and they could get it. Living it out, that takes your life being connected to the deep well of God's grace revealed to you in Jesus Christ. That's how you're going to live out a passage like this. All right? Let's pray together. Father, for these few minutes, as we look into your word, would you give us your perspective that you wanted your disciples to have? Would we walk out of this place more confident and clear on the kind of people that you want us to be? Father, as we are disciples here in 2023, we don't just want to rely on getting smarter and somehow attach that to maturity. But Father, when the tensions rise and difficulty and uh, persecution arises on account of the word, may we be found faithful. Would we respond with the heart of Christ to those people in our lives who perhaps disrespect us, revile us, who have things to say that are hard to hear? And would you give us such a deep, abiding sense of your presence and the power through your spirit 
to be the kind of people that you want us to be. Would you bless us as we look into your word here this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Y'all there? All right, we're there. Welcome to church. Uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 27. You see how Luke 6, 27 starts? It starts with a conjunction. It really is a conjunction that is a reversal conjunction, right? It's a contrast to what Jesus has said before. And the contrast is really what I just read to you earlier up in the passage of Luke chapter 6. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. That's the key idea that Jesus is going to now apply to those who have enemies. So there, here's how he starts. But I say to you who hear, let me, let me pause and say, you're going to have, I don't know, does anybody hate you in here this morning? Hopefully not. We're a loving church. Hopefully nobody hates you in here right now. Uh, but you're going to go to work on Monday, right? And you're going to have people at work who might disagree with the things that you heard on Sunday. Amen? Right? You're going to have those realities. So as Jesus begins his discipleship of the 12, he takes them out of their normal rhythm. Right? He prayed all night long. He called them to himself. We come up on the mountain. We come out to the plain. And he begins to teach them, essentially in preparation for real life. That's what we do together on Sunday, is we gather to hear God's word, to understand who he is, what he says, what Jesus has done, and then seek to apply that in our Monday through Saturday, right? That's how our discipleship works. So Jesus is letting these guys know, hey, you people who hear this, let me tell you how you're expected to respond as a Christian when you have people who oppose you. And here's what he says right in the beginning of verse 27. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. How do you treat, how do you treat your enemies? You ignore them? You dismiss them, you overlook them, you fight them. And right from the beginning, Jesus gives you so crystal clear of a response to how you should respond to those people who hate you, to those people who would consider you their enemy. And notice all through these next few verses, what Jesus is going to do is take the posture of the Christian and he's going to say the posture of the Christian is not withdrawal and hibernation. The posture of the Christian is not passive. The posture of the Christian is active, intentional love. So you may exist in a time, in a place, in your neighborhood, at school, at work, where there are people opposed to who you are, what you think, what you feel, and what you believe. But your posture isn't just keeping your mouth shut. Your posture is intentional, active love. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Verse 28 Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. That word abuse is used only one other time in the New Testament in this format. It's over in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3 says this. Uh, he's talking about having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So the idea is not just that you have enemies, but those enemies are active. They don't just feel angry about who you are. 
And remember, you now as a disciple of Jesus Christ are in the company of true prophets, right? That's the context in which Jesus is giving this truth in Luke chapter 6. Do you see that in the previous paragraph? True prophets, false prophets. False prophets, everybody loves them. True prophets, they've got opposition in life. They've got people who hate them. They've got people who are on the other side of the ball who say, we want nothing to do with you, we hate you. Not only that, do they have intense feelings of hatred, but now it begins to spill out of their mouth and they would curse you and they would abuse you. And the posture, Jesus says, to these enemies who have the goal of abusing, slandering you, is a heart response. Do you see that? That before you say anything to the people who hate you, who disagree with you and disrespect you, there's got to be something that's happening at the deep, deep level of your heart. There's got to be a desire for blessing and a desire to pray for those who oppose you. Are we convicted yet? I mean, we're only two verses in. Is this hard to hear for any of you? This is hard for me to hear. To people who might, let me, let me put you in the mind of a pastor. Let me tell you about the people who disrespect my line of work, who don't want to talk to me at the party. You ever been there? You ever been in a conversation, talking with a guy who's got a $10,000 watch, a $50,000 truck, and talks about making two fifty dollars a year, and you tell him what you do for a living? I tell you how fast I can shut down a conversation with somebody. It's amazing. It's amazing. You want to talk about Jesus? Nope. Where are you going? <laughs> it's like that. Now, you may feel things like that. You may go to work, and people will go, you go to church on Sunday? You believe what the Bible says? You believe that Jesus? Jesus, that's the person you are? What are you doing with your life? This is stupid. And Jesus says our, our default posture, hey, disciples, pay attention. You with the truth about God and who he is and his revelation through Jesus Christ, you true prophets, you bless and you pray. Now, it gets worse than that. We've gone from hatred, emotional intensity toward those who believe in Jesus Christ. We've gone toward verbal abuse towards those who believe in Jesus Christ. Verse 29 gives you a picture of profound disrespect. It's probably a verse that you've heard before. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. Now, a slap on the cheek. I, I did martial arts for a number of years, taught martial arts for a number of years. There's not one time in my teaching of martial arts where I said, open hand slap somebody in the mouth. It's not really a great strike. You can easily see it coming. It doesn't do a lot of damage. It's really surprising. But it's a profound expression. Both Paul and Jesus were struck in the mouth during their ministry periods. And it's a profound expression of disrespect. And when you're slapped, when you slap somebody in the cheek, the picture that Jesus has is of you turning the other one, right? So if I'm in hit over here, I'm turning this one, right? I'm turning this one back. And what am I doing for a person who is disrespecting what I believe, the truth I am speaking, the belief in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness available in his name, what am I doing as I come back to that person who hates me, abuses me, and wants nothing to do with me? What I'm doing is moving back into relationship, and I'm acknowledging the reality that there is a risk of being in the relationship with somebody who hates me. 
It's not retaliation, but it's an acknowledgement that I'm willing to come back into relationship with this individual who has a profound disrespect for what I see. So how much do you love your reputation? That's really what this is about. How important is your reputation to yourself in the eyes of others? So that when those who disrespect you, those who look down on you because of what you believe about Jesus Christ, how willing are you to maintain that relationship because of who Jesus calls you to be? Not only that, he says, to those who take away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. So these disciples need to be willing to lose the respect of their peers, lose the respect of their family, lose the respect of those in their neighborhood or in their workplace, but they're also willing to lose physical possessions. That they don't cling to their physical possessions as the source of their comfort and well-being. They're able to take a loss with what they have. Why? because they're willing to share the greatest treasure that God has given us in Jesus Christ. So that my worldly possessions are not the most important thing to me. Let me give you a picture of this. This is from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews is talking to those who have believed in Christ and trusted in Christ, and he says this, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes in being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's really the background of what Jesus tells us in verse 30. Look what verse 30 says. Give to everyone who begs from you. That word beg isn't somebody on the side of the road asking for help. It's probably a picture of someone who's demanding what you have because of what you believe. It's a, it, think about government confiscating the goods of a Christian, which is the picture you have in Hebrews chapter 10. Give to the one who begs from you, who demands from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, don't demand them back. So these disciples are free from the trappings of life in this sinful world. They're meant to not cling to their reputation in the eyes of others. They're willing to be hurt in relationship for the sake of making the truth of Jesus Christ known, of being a faithful, true prophet in their day. They're willing to take a loss financially. They're willing to take a loss with their physical possessions even to seek to bless and to pray for those who might come against them. And then Jesus gives you verse 31, which is Luke's version of the golden rule. Now I want you, maybe you've probably heard the golden rule before, haven't you? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But the way that you understand the golden rule really is in the context of what Luke is giving to us here. What is the context of what Luke is giving us? He's giving a, con a context of oppression and persecution, of hatred and bitter enemies who heap verbal abuse on you, who mistreat you, who revile you, who want nothing to do with you. And in the context, he gives us verse 31. Verse 31, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Do you see again how active the verbs are? These are the marching orders for the disciples. Active, intentional, well-being, blessing, prayer, and love. Now, 
Commentators note that this form of this statement that Jesus gives in verse 31 often happens in the context where it's stated negatively. And it's called the silver rule. The golden rule, real high, to do that, to be continually, actively loving and blessing others who persecute me, that's a high call. You know what's easier to do? Is do the silver rule. You know what the silver rule is? Don't do to others as you don't want them to do to you. Do you know what that makes you? That makes you passive. Just be a good citizen. Don't disrupt the relationship. Don't disrupt the neighborhood. Don't take a stand for Jesus. Just be generally kind. Don't do anything difficult to actually tell people something that they might be discouraged by, that might cause them consternation, that might cause them to have to consider true things that Jesus says about them. But when Jesus gives, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. So let me remind you, Jesus is talking to the disciples. He's about to launch them into a worldwide evangelization project to take the truth of God to the ends of the earth. And at the beginning, he says, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Let's just reflect on that just for a minute. Who had in this room somebody share Christ with them that wasn't a part of your immediate family? Raise your hand. I did. Go raise them high. Let's just look real, real quick. You had somebody take a risk with you. You know that? You had somebody who was willing to speak to you when you were an enemy of God without hope in the world? Do you have friends or family members that you are praying right now that they would come to know Jesus? Raise your hand. How would you want a Christian to react to them? Would you want a Christian to persevere such that that loved one of yours would come to the knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't we all? And that's the context in which Jesus says this. Do you remember the time when you were separated from God without hope in the world? Do you remember how somebody shared Christ with you and made you realize that you needed to repent, that you had an opportunity for reconciliation, and that because of believing in Jesus, God poured peace and forgiveness and grace into your life? Don't we want that for our community? Don't we want that for our family? Don't we want that for our neighborhood, our workplace, our, our uh, place where you learn? Thank you. School, I went there once. Amen? Isn't that what we want? So we want, we remember this time when we were separated from God and somebody took a risk to step toward an enemy of God and give the truth of Jesus Christ to us. Now, before we go on, I just want you, I want to draw out one little bitty word here in verse 31. Do you see the word uh, wish? You see that? In here and in a moment, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to say that this kind of behavior that he's calling the disciples to, this obedient step of how they're to respond when times are tough, how they're to respond when people hate them. He invites them for a moment in the golden rule 
into their imagination. He paints a picture using a word that has to do with the way that we think, the way that we imagine. Imagine what my relationships with Christ could be. Imagine the opportunities that are available to us if we are to obey what Jesus says here. And as Jesus invites us into thinking about this, he says that Christians essentially, listen, we're culture creators. Our culture is longing for people who are magnanimous, who are able to overlook an insult. People who live by a higher standard Our movies are filled with characters that we look to that we believe are able to transcend difficulty because the core of belief in the convictions that they have. And Jesus says, as you wish this to be, he's inviting us in to think about these things. Now, what Jesus is going to do next is move from the marks. You got the marks now? Just just love, pray, bless, do good, and love your enemies. No big deal, right? Pretty easy, write that down. What Jesus is going to do now is scrape away the, the, uh, the marks that he calls us to. And Jesus is very stark in the way he does this at the beginning. And now Jesus is going to get to our motivations. He's going to get to the way that we normally operate in relationships. And we all have a default in relationships. It's probably more silver rule than it is golden rule, Right? And when Jesus is going to show us that there's nothing spiritual necessarily about living by the silver rule. And he's going to give you three quick examples to show you how our hearts typically work. To show us what the default sinful mindset is of humans. Look at verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Now, sinners has been used in the book of Luke up to this point, right? Peter called himself a sinner. He recognized that he was not who he ought to be, but Jesus uses it as a categorical term. He's got his disciples and this way of life, and he's got sinners and this way of life over here. And he says, as I look out at sinners and the way that life happens in the world, it's no great credit to these individuals to love those who love them. And note, Jesus is talking about how we respond. How hard is it to love people who love you? Not very hard. He says even sinners do that. Even people with no ethical and moral compass, even people who don't believe in the Bible, they understand what it means to love those who love them. There's no benefit. There's no benefit to that when you do that. Look at verse 33. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what a benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Everybody operates according to a kind of relational karma. Put good in, get good out. I volley it over to you, you volley it back to me. That we understand the unspoken rules of relationship. You know when we get bothered? When someone breaks the unspoken rules in relationship. Amen? That's when we start to get a little uncomfortable. They're not playing by the do good. I do good to you, you do good to me. This is how we we maintain our relationship this way. So none of us has to lose. I do good to you, you do good to me. We're good. There's an equilibrium. Jesus says, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Look at verse 34. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. No sinner makes a risky investment on principle. 
The picture here is probably maintaining a kind of social financial equilibrium. So that when I do well and someone needs help, I can give to them so that at a later time when I need help, it comes back around. So I can maintain my financial, financially comfortable way of life without really ever going into any debt because we all protect and look out for one another's back. And Jesus says, listen, even sinners do that. And you see the term he uses? What benefit, what benefit, what credit? It's all the same word in the Greek. It changes a little bit because Jesus uses a financial example. But it's the word grace. And Jesus is saying, what evidence of grace is that? When you only love people who love you. When you only do good to people who do good to you. When you only lend to people who will pay you back and maintain your financial lifestyle. That's not any evidence of God's grace. It's not any evidence of you being changed from the inside out. It hasn't touched your values at all. See, all three of these examples have somebody move toward us, have somebody think for us, have somebody do something good to us, and we return. None of these examples involve risk, initiating, sacrifice, giving, serving, loving, doing good, and expecting nothing in return. And that's what Jesus says in verse 35. Another contrast for us. Look at verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And this is really the the unspoken rule of relationship, isn't it? is play by my expectations. It's another loaded emotional term. If we think about do unto others as we would wish be done to us, we need to use our religious and our spiritual imagination. Here, as Jesus talks about the normative relationships that characterize people in the world, he said they're all founded on expectation. There aren't real relationships out there that are founded on what Jesus is talking about until he talks about it here until he commands a Christian to be free from thinking about themselves, to be free from the relational, karmic approach to relationships. He breaks that cycle, and he says, disrupt that cycle so that when you face enemies, when you face people who hate you, when you face people who mistreat you, verse 35, love them do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And he gives two promises. Do you see the promises here right in the middle of verse 35? Because this way of life, and this is really how Jesus is going to end this conversation, this way of life has a future attached to it. You may be familiar with the way relationships work in the world. But when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus Christ, Jesus gets to the very heart of what it means to relate to people in this passage. He recognizes that the decisions that you are making are either going to have a preservation of yourself at its heart or a faithfulness to Jesus at its heart. Because we're all that way. Look at what he says. When you live this way, 
When you expect nothing in return, you're one, number one, your reward will be great. You remember when Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, he talks about giving, praying, and fasting. And when giving, he says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. When you pray, you don't pray out in front of people. You go into your, into your room, and your father who sees in secret will, you can read it later, will reward you. When you're fasting, don't make a big deal of it. But your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So there is a grace economy. Jesus doesn't just say, do it and be disciplined. He recognizes that there's reward. Jesus, in the, at the end of Matthew, he talks about uh, that he will not neglect to give a reward even to those who give a cup of cold water. Do you know that? Do you know that, that Paul ends the resurrection passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 saying, always be abounding in the work of the Lord because Jesus is risen and your labor is not in vain. How are we going to do this unless we really believe that Jesus sees our faithfulness to him? And Jesus makes sure these disciples know this is hard. It's hard to have enemies. Nobody likes being disliked. Anybody who's a pleaper pleaser knows relational conflict is a huge conflict is a huge tension in your life. I get it. But Jesus says, when you act this way, you are seen by God, and He will reward you. Number two, you will be sons of the Most High. Now, why would Jesus say that? Being sons of the Most High is an identity title, isn't it? It's a recognition of lineage. It's a recognition of identity. And what Jesus is saying is here, it's a recognition of family resemblance. You will be sons of the Most High. Why? Because of what he says in the remainder of the verse. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Don't you hate it when people don't thank you for what you do? Doesn't that bother you? And Jesus says, when you love, when you do good, when you sacrificially maintain that relationship with somebody who hates who you are, what you have to say, what you believe, what you think about Jesus, one, you'll be rewarded, and two, you're becoming more like your heavenly father. Romans talks about sinful mankind and it says that they did not honor God nor give thanks to him so here's God in heaven looking down upon his creation filled with people that he has created and it's filled with people who don't give thanks for the air that he created for them to breathe the water he gives them to live the food he provides for them the rain, in Matthew chapter 5 talks about uh, the rains that God gives in season he gives to the just and the unjust that God lavishly provides for sinners who have no eye toward worship and thanksgiving toward who he is. Not only that, they spurn his laws, they hate his rules, and persist in wickedness. And Jesus says, when you act this way, love, serve, bless, invest, be willing to mistreat it, lose financially, lose physical possessions, lose respect in the eyes of your peers... 
Number one, you have a reward from God. And number two, you are becoming more like God, which means as Jesus is training the disciples, he is showing them what discipleship looks like. See, a lot of our discipleship has a tendency to be about mental, intellectual knowledge growth. You know when I know you're mature? When people hate you. You know, when I, when I know your life is drawing from the deep well of God's grace is that when you respond gently to people who revile you, I go, something is happening in that individual. Something is happening in her life that she has that kind of peace, patience, gentleness. Her life is connected to the grace of God. Because the goal of discipleship is not just more mental dexterity with theological concepts. The goal of discipleship is becoming more like Jesus. Which is what Jesus gives us here. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Verse 36, therefore, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. What does that mean? What does that mean the temptation is in a passage when you have enemies and people who hate you? You know what the temptation is? The temptation is to treat them as they deserve. Oh God, hit them with a bus in Jesus' name. Because <laughs> I only want what Jesus wants. Right? And Jesus invites you to go, you are becoming sons and daughters of the Most High. I am changing you from someone who will respond to their enemies the way the world does, I am changing you into the likeness of your heavenly Father. Therefore, be merciful. Show restraint. How merciful are we? How merciful am I? How merciful are you when you drive? How merciful are you when people disagree with you? How patient and long-suffering are we in relationship? Man, is this convicting yet? Gosh, I hate preaching convicting things. See, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. There God is gracious, here God is merciful, which means God is consistently in the business of not giving people what they deserve. Amen? Christians, Amen? He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Now, verse 37, in one of the most misunderstood passages. Are you with me so far? You all right? You tracking? You see the context in which Jesus is training these disciples for life in a sinful world, life where we are opposed? Watch what he says in verse 37, because this verse is wrenched out of context all the time. Because everybody loves to use this verse to basically, whatever. Verse 37. <laughs> judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. So Jesus just said, be merciful as your Father is merciful, right? Which means if Jesus acknowledges that God is being merciful, what God is not doing is ignoring the standard. God is choosing to delay judgment, right? That's what mercy is. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. It's a restraint on the part of God to not treat us as our sins deserve. 
And every person, no matter who you are, will either have your sins forgiven in Jesus' name or one day all of your sins will come due in an eternal lake of fire for all time. And when Jesus gives you verse 37 and he says, judge not and you won't be judged, condemn not and you won't be condemned, forgiven, you will be forgiven. What Jesus is doing is saying, don't close the door on anyone. Don't make the final determination in your heart on anyone. Did anybody do things before their life in Christ that they're embarrassed of? Anybody? That if God chose to judge in 1985, you might not have experienced, who wasn't alive in 85? Let me just, hang on a second. We got a young church. I got to use a different date, right? Aren't you thankful for the mercy of God? Aren't you thankful that he hadn't, didn't treat you as your sins deserved before you knew of the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross for you? So Jesus isn't saying, let's suspend all moral and ethical standards. It's, way it's actually way worse than that. We acknowledge that we fall short of the glorious standard of perfect obedience to God. And we don't want to close the door on anyone. Church, we believe that? Do we believe that anybody today, no matter what they've done in their background, can come to the knowledge of salvation in Jesus Christ's name? Amen? We believe that. We believe that today is the, the day of salvation. We believe that no matter what your background is, you can find forgiveness and mercy in Jesus' name. So we don't want to close the door on anyone. We don't want to make the final call on anyone. That's God's call to make, not our call to make. We want to put forth and raise up the Son of Man. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now, Jesus moves to a, a, another economic parable real briefly here in verse 38. Look at what he says. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Now, why does he do this here? It's a, uh, it's a grain weight illustration, which, uh, when's the last time you bought grain this way? I, I'll help you. Uh, if you were to buy grain, you would go to somebody who sells grain, and they would sell it to you by weight. They'd sell it to you by measure. And the measure would be the certain amount of grain that you would get equal to the weight. So you would pay this amount of money, I would get this amount of grain. And they'd take your basket full of grain, and they'd pour it, and they'd pour all the grain, the corn, the wheat, whatever it is, into this basket. And they'd take the basket, and they'd press it down to make sure that you got every single dime. You ever make, uh, you ever bake? Anybody bake? You know when you put flour into a cup, you can't take flour and press it down and get as much flour as you, in, as you can into that cup because otherwise your cake measurements are going to get screwed up. Amen, bakers? Amen. Right? You can't do it that way. Well, here's what they do. They take all this wheat, this grain, this barley, whatever it is, and they press it all the way down in the basket. They spin it. They shake it. They pour more on top. They'll press it all the way down, all the way to the point where it is now running over. Now, in context, what is it? If you can live life this way over here and get no grace, no credit, no recognition for the kind of person you are as a Christian, as somebody like sinners live, but this way over here is a reward, is a confirmation of your identity, then what Jesus is saying is there is abundant recognition from the heavens for living this kind of way. There is abundant blessing that comes from God himself into your life because you are becoming the person that God wants you to be. Good measure, pressed down, 
shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So here's the, here's the question. Is my standard of things, is my measure of things, God's measure of things? Does our version of Christianity in 2023 involve any persevering in relationship for the sake of Jesus Christ? Are we willing ever to lose respect, lose financially, lose influence for the sake of turning our face back into relationships with people who need the truth of Jesus Christ? Is that version anything in your mindset? Because I know for me, I think all of us, we all have a default to do what Jesus gave in those three examples. We all have a default to love the people who love us. We all have a default to do good to the people who do good to us. Because really our, our life is, has a tendency, and my life has a tendency to, to shrink down to self-protection. It's, it has a tendency to, to shrink in selfishness. It makes me withdraw and play defense. And I recognize the high call of what it means to be discipled by Jesus Christ and to be called into active, intentional blessing and love of others. Now the remainder, this, this whole passage ends, and I think you've seen it change here in this last paragraph, and the whole tone changes because everything is future. You see that? You will be great. You will be sons of God. You will not be judged. You will not be condemned. You will be forgiven. It's all discipleship with a, with a forward tilt. It's discipleship on our toes. It's, it's discipleship where we are meant to believe some deep and abiding truths about God. What are they? That God is merciful. That God is on high and has a standard. That he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to forgive sins. But all of us as believers aren't meant to be on our heels we're meant to have a forward tilt to our lives so that we are looking forward to the recognition of God. We are looking forward to the time when we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. When I think about my seasons in life, one of the things I often do is try to get ahead of the season that I am in that is causing me so much consternation. And I try to think ahead 10 years. And the 10 year ahead me what I want is to look back on the season that I am in now and to go, I was the man that God wanted me to be that day, that season, that time. I responded the way God wanted me to. You with me? So I want to have a forward tilt knowing that there's coming a day where I will be judged for every thought, word, and deed where every person, every man, every woman will be judged for every thought, word, and deed. And Jesus shows us that our discipleship now has the ability to take those future realities of grace and mercy that we will receive on that day because of Jesus, bring it into our lives here, and live it out in Jesus' name. Now these verbs, how are you going to do that? 
How were you really, Monday morning, 10.30 in the morning, and you had that conversation with that individual, and they still don't like you. What are you going to do? You can't bare-knuckle obedience this passage. You know why? Because all of the verbs that Jesus gives us are, are very stark, right? They're very vivid verbs. And the way that you are actually going to be the man or woman that God wants you to be in that situation with that opposition and mistreatment and disrespect and that eye roll. You may, not fit, you may not be slapped in the face tomorrow because of Jesus' name, but you ever get eye rolled in Jesus' name? You ever got people dismiss you, don't want to hear what you have to say? People who don't think you're, uh, you are smart, don't think you have the convictions that you ought to, don't think you're good at your job because of what you believe in Jesus' name? The way that you're going to get through that is to look and meditate. And this is what I did this week, is I just meditated on these verbs. And as I meditated on these verbs, what, what came out of me, and I think what comes out of all of us, is this argument with the text. God can't expect me to be like that. He can't really mean that person. He can't expect me to, to be that gracious, does he? And as I meditated on these verbs, essentially, and the commands that Jesus gave, and I thought about, here's Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, and he just prayed for these 12 guys, and he's standing there, and he's teaching them, don't retaliate, bless, don't curse, do good, love, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. And we can't get out of this passage without recognizing that Jesus does all of these things, doesn't he? He experiences all of these things that he is reviled, that he's disrespected, that all of his worldly goods are taken away. He loses the respect of his family. One of the men he calls to ministry betrays him. All of the disciples scatter. He's beaten and abused by men. He's nailed to a cross all before he experiences the wrath of God on the cross for us. So in this way, Jesus is a great leader. Jesus never says, do as I say and not as I do. Because right at the beginning of his discipleship of these men, he says, this is how you're going to act, and then he's going to show it. And then he's going to be reviled, and then he's going to be hated, and he's going to pray for his enemies on the cross. So that we would know when we face op opposition, when we face persecution, when we are disrespected for believing in Jesus and who he is, Jesus is right there saying, I know and I understand. I know what that is like. You are not alone and you are not on your own. See, when we consider the ministry of Jesus Christ, and one of the reasons I think we're often surprised at facing opposition for our faith is that we, we, we kind of miss that Jesus' three years of ministry was filled with opposition and persecution. It was filled with people who hated it. We just saw that in Luke chapter 5, right? That the Pharisees hate this man. The Pharisees want nothing to do with him. And right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he says to these disciples, I'll go first. So that later on in Luke, he says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Guys, this is one of the most significant discipleship realities for all of us. 
we are all going to face our spiritual lives where we're going to run uphill against our flesh, against self-protection, against loving the appraise and approval of men. But Jesus calls us into faithfulness to his name, faithfulness in the time that he's given us to be the men and the women that he wants us to be. And in doing that, we receive a heavenly reward, a heavenly recognition as we live faithfully in the time that he's given us. Let's pray. Father, as we remember the words to your disciples here, we pause and take stock of our own lives. We recognize that our identity as sons of God is secure because of what you've done for us. So Father, as we uh, seek to live lives of faithfulness to you, would we know your pleasure? Would we walk in your ways? Would we be obedient to your word and be the men and women that you desire for us to be? Father, for the relationships in this room that we have with folks who that are characterized by um, disrespect, by persecution, by eye rolls, by uh, apathy, Father, would you give us strength to hear your word and to walk in your ways when it comes to these verses? Would we have the courage to bless and not curse? Would we have the courage to pray heartfelt prayers that you would pour out your grace upon the lives of those who disagree with us? And Father, would we be faithful men and women in our time holding up the truth of Jesus Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection? and offer to the world the fact that their sins can be wiped out and that we could be reconciled to God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.